Hello, and welcome to Podspace 9, the last stop for trash in the Alpha Quadrant. This is today, not a rewatch podcast. My name is Justin, and I'll be your chief of staff here at the Palais de la Concorde. Here to talk about a particular work of Star Trek fiction, we have a writer and historian, John Connor. John, welcome to the show. Delighted to be here. Um, I hate to do this when we started, but it's uh, Concur. <laughs> oh, well. It's fine. It's fine. I... Um... I, I have a California accent which murders anything. Yeah. I, it's, a, it's a personal rite of passage to be like, yeah, okay. So don't don't worry. I have had many a more, many a person who should have known better get it wrong. I am, however, absolutely delighted to be here. Thank you. Uh, yeah. Um, so, um, first of all, who are you? Um, I am, oh God, uh, I am a... 20-something-year-old historian, master student of British imperialism, the British Empire. Um, I also work at a bar sometimes. But in terms of this, I am a... This is the whole thing. It comes back to this debate is what's the correct term to call it. And sometimes I people call it, um, like, forms of fan fiction, fan history. The uh, the great His Excellency Larry Nemanchek, Dr. Trek himself, referred to it last week as um, fan nonfiction. So I'm going to say that I am a writer of fan nonfiction, specifically fan history nonfiction about the Star Trek, which I am horrifically obsessed with. So uh, we'll get into what you are currently writing in a moment, but how did you get into Star Trek originally? Oh boy, this is a complicated one. So there are three answers. The first answer is um, it was on Netflix and it looked cool and I watched it. The second answer is when I was 11, I went to see Star Trek Into Darkness at a friend's birthday party and ripped the shit out of it so much we got kicked out of the theatre. I should remember now, I think I was 13, not 11. Either way, I got kicked out of the theatre. And three... When we were very little, one of the cassettes in the family car was Leonard Nimoy singing The Ballad of Bilbo Baggins. Excellent. So take your choice as to which one of those is funny or more enjoyable. But either way, I got into Star Trek through that. I think this current era of obsession began, like a lot of people's, during the lockdown when I started doing a podcast called I Quit Star Trek. You you may have heard of it, you may not have heard of it. We're sort of on pseudo hiatus now while we figure out how to record a 100th episode. But we once a week... In the flow, we'd get a guest on and talk about terrible Star Trek. And the thing about terrible Star Trek is it makes you think a lot about Star Trek. Yes. And then you're there forever. That's one thing that I think is really interesting about Star Trek is that when there's something like good Star Trek will often meld, like you you will accept it into like your consciousness of like what Star Trek is. But the bad Star Trek, I maybe it's just something with fandom brain, but you want to work to make it fit. Yeah. And you shouldn't. It's not good. It's not healthy. Yeah. What is The Edge of Midnight? <laughs> oh, I'm glad you asked. Let me go to the website where I can write the bit that I did write about this. And The Edge of Midnight is a history of the Federation Klingon Cold War written from the perspective of a 24th century historian. It's, imagine going into a bookshop, but if you're American at Barnes & Noble, if you're British at Waterstones, if you're from another part of the world, you get the idea. And you go to the nonfiction section as a big, thick tome about the First World War or the Cold War. This is what that book looks like in Picard's era. This is that book about the Klingon War. It's your, it's your dad. It's, if your dad was in Star Trek, this is the book he's reading at 
on Christmas afternoon. Now I think it's gone to the to the point where it'd be multiple terms. Oh god! Um, I mean, uh, it's not. It's the first book isn't quite a tome. It's um actually surprisingly thin once you sort of nice it up. Oh yeah, that's that's doable. That's, that's doable. But its inspiration was this. And for those who obviously can't see a visual format, I'm holding up a copy of Robert K. Massey's Dreadnought, which if you've ever wanted to know anything about World War One and why it happened, is probably the best one of the best books for it. But it's it's what, seven massive. It's a thousand pages long. And Edge of Midnight is an attempt to do that, but with Star Trek and basically go from start season one of Star Trek Discoveries through to the Undiscovered Country and make it all fit together. Which is something I don't recommend you try and do. <laughs> no, there's um I mean, the amount of questions that come up from that are obviously myriad. There are I mean the least of which is foreheads foreheads oh you see the forehead one is fascinating to me because um i don't care yeah which <laughs> which i think is which i i think um mutual uh like there's the 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 four species uh document that uh no sound uh, did i think like where there's like the, oh all of them are different species it's a fun idea but also it's like we we were talking about this with another guest when we did uh uh gosh the the Klingon the, the episode where uh, Bloodless. Bloodless. yes um where we were just like in reality it doesn't actually matter but it's fun to think it I think if if anything the fact that I don't care about the foreheads speaks a lot to the approach of Edge of Midnight is that it's a very superficial aspect of the story I'm trying to tell, which is of what happens with the Klingons, especially what happens when a medieval empire tries to modernize really quickly, what forces are unleashed by that. And that's industrialization, military autocracy, kleptocracy, ideas of ideas of eugenesis superiority, really dangerous ideas. And all of those, the shape of your forehead is both relevant. It's only relevant when they interact with that. So, yeah. I don't really. It comes up, yeah, when it comes up politically. But I have I've never nailed down what do my Klingons look like because my Klingons look like Klingons. It's one of the great advantages of writing in prose is I don't have to describe what my characters look like unless I want to. One of the things is that in what's been released of fifteen chapters so far, um, is that the Klingons are decidedly not human. Like that, like they they operate very differently. Like the revolution that occurs in book one is not like you you go to lengths to say like this is not a Marxist revolution. This is not. It's not a color revolution. It's not a Mar- the closest parallel is something like the peasants' revolt, but even that makes it too simple because there is an ideological bend to it. Yeah, there is. I, there is a radical ideology, but it's not radical as we would define it. But yeah, it's either making the Klingons feel alien through ideas is always more interesting than making them feel alien through appearance. So where did this start? <laughs> so the start is this book, because yeah. Dreadnought, because in summer 2020, I, when England, our lockdown lifted because they were trying to keep the economy going and instead they just got everybody a bit ill. Uh, sidebar, you might want to keep it on 
funny is that the scheme to get um, people out to spend money to keep the economy going was called Eat Out to Help Out. And it was created by our current Prime Minister Rishi Sunak when he was head of the Treasury. And I have largely described it as Rishi Sunak, friend of the lesbians, sponsors Eat Out to Help Out. <laughs> anyway, it got a bunch of people killed, so I shouldn't joke about it. But um, during that time, I went to the north of England to a place called Cumbria, which is really beautiful. And while walking, I dislocated my ankle, which sucked. So I read all of this. And I read all of this while watching Star Trek and, of all things, Shira and the Princesses of Power. So they're all yeah. cycling through my head at the same time. And in about November of that year, I'm in a barbershop waiting for a queue. And I just think, oh, I have this idea about a story I want to tell about what's going on in the Federation after the Klingon War. And I just start typing it. It just goes, it keeps coming, writing, and writing, writing. And then I put it out, the first chapter, Christmas Eve. And people read it, which was a shock. People kept reading it. And they kept reading it and asking for more. And talking about it and sharing it to their friends. And I just kept going. I mean, the original plan was to do 100,000 words and get to Kitima. Mm-hmm. But that wasn't happening. I mean, like having observed this from the writing end, I mean, it, you know, this is there's fifteen. I I think like the the second book is definitely a little more expansive than the first one, if or at least it feels like it. And we haven't even like we're not even at the original series yet. Oh yeah, the the first book is kind of very tight, but it also covers a short period of time because it's got to get you to understand why they can't back away, mm-hmm. why these two powers are locked into the struggle. But then the second book is just going to plough on and on to Organia. So, you know, it'd take a while to do Akamar, which is only a year in, but it is just going to spiral down from here. Cause... But that's the thing with history books is they focus in events and they just, you know, some history books will do a year in a sentence because it's just not relevant. Yeah. Um, sometimes, sometimes things are, like, calm and status quo, relatively. Between what's going on on tv right now and i feel like a lot of what would be described as like beta canon material there's a lot of stuff that is that is coming from that beta beta canon material it feels like in edge of midnight there's a lot of it in this specific period but not a lot of it say like after the original like in that like 20 year gap between the start of the movies and undiscovered country Weirdly, the bit I'm doing right now between Discovery and the original series is kind of the biggest drought. Okay. In a sense that um, nobody can really agree why the Organic War happens in Beta mm-hmm. Canon. The person who put the most thought into it really is the Errand of Mercy, no, Errand of Fury, Errand of Vengeance series, mm-hmm. which is six novellas about the run up to the Clear War. And Enterprise's role in it. And it's great. But even they are basically like the war. The Clone is only really... The whole thing kicks off about two years before Errand of Mercy. Which... Uh... And then other novels just basically act like, oh, it's not a real... It, it's a skirmish that escalates into a war and there's no real tension. Whereas, you know, the the binding sentence in Edge of... The binding moment of Edge of Midnight in terms of on-text bit is that briefing at the beginning of Undiscovered Country... Where the admirals can't imagine not being about to go to war with the Klingons. And Spock is talking about the unprecedented 
end of nearly 70 years of conflict. <laughs> That's what I'm more interested in. Yeah. But it's it's weird, like, the amount of content that Betacan is in is huge. It's yeah. just a lot of it isn't, like, I could go and explore events years, year after year. But it's more interesting to sort of tie them in in background to what I really want to do. So the biggest borrowing of pure plot for Beta Cannon is the Rittenhouse plot. But even that, I twist my own way. Like anyone who's talked... So for those who don't know, Diane Carey wrote a book called Dreadnought, where her, um, for lack of a better word, uh, self-insert character stops a military coup by blowing up a star dreadnought, um, sure. Anyway, I liked the idea of a bit of, like, seven days in May military coup stuff, but I didn't like the idea that they would have got very far. Mm-hmm. So I introduced Rittenhouse, and I have this MacArthur type who loses. But that's, I do a lot of that. I take an existing concept and work it the way I want it to work. Mm-hmm. Because, like, um, the way I treat the Orions involves burning a lot of existing beta cannon because it's just bad and a bit racist. Yeah, I, I think that the Orions are... <sighs> space pirate is... I like the idea of space piracy. I think that it, I, 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 as somebody who loves pirates, this is both in, like, the fictional concept and the historical concept, I love that. But the... Um, uh, yeah, Orion's I, I, race of space pirates is definitely is not great. No, and the thing is, is that the way I went is well, ha- the Federation is a post-capitalist, post-scarcity. I don't, I don't even, I don't even dare to call it communist utopia because even they would consider the concept of that idea backward in a sense. Yeah, because it's still, it's still acting on like it's. It's still react like I, communism is a reaction to capitalism. Yeah, this yeah. is the point. Is that it's not even that because here's the point. Uh, a lot of the way that Trek works is that they can say what they want, but cap, cap, the movement of capital still exists. The Federation just creates a society where you can the the existence of the movement and practice of capital capitalism is just fundamentally irrelevant to your life. Yeah, which is even more radical than communism in many senses. Uh, yes. This is not to say that you can't call you can't say that they're not a communist utopia to be aspired to, you know. I mean I might be a dirty pinker, but you know. Anyway. And to me, looking at that thing, you then turn and look at the Orion's like, why are they calling these people pirates and villains? Oh, because that's how they feel about people like the Dutch East India Company and the British East India Company. Mm-hmm. That's how they feel about eighteenth century adventurer capitalist imperialists. They just think they're pirates. They think they're yeah. criminals because they are criminals. Robert Clive broke the law on several occasions, even by his own standards. The East India Company was shut down because for financial mismanagement and for causing a massive uprising. These companies were full of of, uh, of vice and criminal activity. So I just imagine that one of the Iran Syndicate in its original form was just an East India Company. Yeah. And suddenly... It meant, oh, I'm not thinking of the Orions as this sort of like hedonist, Eastern, hedonist in a sort of orientalist East, East imagination. They're hedonists in the 18th century British um, drink a lot, dance a lot, spit on the poor, allow the poor to get drunk, let the poor riot a lot, 
have sl- have household slaves. Talk about how awful it is that you have household slaves. Live with it anyway. Kind of hedonism. Mm-hmm. You're thinking, you know, the hedonism of Versailles more than the hedonism of the East. Number one, because I don't want to do Orientalist shit. And two, it's just more interesting. It's different. Anyone can draw Orion and imagine, you know, your Eastern, your stereotypical 1960s sultan. But imagine a riot where they're in coattails and wigs. How wait, how cool would that be? They're like yeah. the uh, well. Actually, you know what that is? That's just a centauri for Babylon Five, isn't it? Oh. <laughs> Shit. <laughs> I mean, there. If you want to have an antagonistic force, there are worse things to be than the Great Centauri Republic. <laughs> I love the Centauri Republic. It's like, wow, you guys really are on the way out. <laughs> One of the things that I think is when you were how did how did the I guess the the outlining of this of this project start? It was like, did you have like set end goals for each part uh, when you started out? Part one was meant to end at Organia. And as I did, it was only really when I started doing the run-up to Caleb 4 that I realised I wasn't going to get there. Because mm-hmm. I wanted to really dig into this. What are the consequences of Klingon rapid expansionism post-war and the Klingon Industrial Revolution? And I realised the moment I wanted to, I wasn't going to be able to breathe straight through 2259, 2260 that I was going to have to take time. So there is a plan. But it's a very loose plan. And it's a loose reasons. One, I don't get paid to do this shit, so I can do it however I want to. Exactly. Two, it allows me to explore whatever threads I want to. So the Akamai crisis was never going to be this big originally. And it's just evolved into this Cuban missile crisis in space moment, because it felt natural to do that. The combination Cuban missile crisis Iran Contra affair in space, as yeah. I saw one person on Twitter refer. Oh yeah, Nathan called it that. Yeah, it's, yeah. I was like, what if I did Iran Contra and keep? It was more like I was trying to go. The original pitch was Bay of Pigs, mm-hmm. but I couldn't find a way to make the Bay of Pigs bit work, so I just went. Well, actually, technically, it's Bay of Pigs immediately followed by Iran Contra and keeping missile at the same time. It's all the worst things of this, all the worst parts of the sixties at the same time, and then a bit of the eighties. But planning it's odd in the sense that I have structure, but that structure does change a lot. Simply because ideas fall away or sections change. Um, certainly how the transition from Laurel to Sturka has changed a couple of times over now. Yeah, I mean, it, it's like, I think, uh, like, as I remember it, like, in at the end of chapter 15, it just happens. It's like there, there isn't. It, it's not very glamorous. Well, it's this is also the trick. It, it's the historian's trick, which is that historians don't write books trying to give you plot twists, right? Right, exactly. They, they, like yeah. you know, Lorel's going to get overthrown. Number one in universe, you know it because you know your history. Mm-hmm. In con- in the book, you'll know it because there'll be a time at the front that says Lorel overthrown. Because I'm, there's, I don't, the twist of Laurel is deposed is not particularly interesting. It's why is she deposed and how is she deposed? So actually, chapter right. sixteen will explore it. Cool. Okay. That's... But it's the point. 
It's like, yeah, I do do I do just drop stuff like, oh, and Lorraine's deposed, and oh, all these treaties just fell apart. Because it's a bit more interesting. There's a whole section on the Battle of Kobax that I am going to just do a par- I've got a 3,000 word outlined piece. I'm going to do detailing the blow by blow Federation versus Klingon battle, like ground battle. But I'm not going to do it in the main text. It's just going to be like the Battle of Kobax or the fate complete for Ken Westcott's government. Because. It's not a military history book. It's not. It's a, it, it would distract too much from it. But yeah, I like there. There are parts of it that do delve into military history, like yeah. like when like like special attention being paid to the first encounter between a constitution and a D seven, which I, oh yeah, like, which was, was like that, that's that that is what people theoretically yeah, that is what people are are downloading in the twenty fourth century as they want to read that bit. Yeah. Well, Excalibur, the Excalibur thing, I was like, is this the first battle? It's the first one that matters. Yeah. One thing that I think is that I particularly enjoy about this compared to, I would say, like, even, like, other fiction I've read is that you is that you have given a lot of thought to how the Federation actually works politically. <laughs> Um, which some people could say that, you know, like, I think they're, I think that we could say that the people who write television for Star Trek have no interest in how the Federation works politically, because this is not a show about no, the play. It's, they, they have no interest in how it works politically, and quite frankly, they shouldn't, because that's not what they're writing about, so that's fine. This is the point. Battle yeah. Five probably does not pay more, much more attention to how its politics works. Like we don't, we know the president. We don't know how the Earth Earth Gov works beyond the president's elected. There are senators, etc., yeah. etc. Et because it works. Because it's just a backdrop. It's a facade, right? Mm-hmm. And the way that Star Trek's written is, it doesn't actually need you to know how the Federation government works. It just needs you to know it's a democracy and it's good. Yeah. And even then, they can see things through trappings like presidents and things. But I put a lot of thought into it because it was going to be really important to my story. But I didn't put thought into things that aren't going to be important. Like, for example, I will never, ever explain the exact process in which a Federation president is elected. I will never give that. I will never put a population to the Federation. I will. Yeah, I won't. Because it's just like there's a rule in things like this where if I put a number down, it's immediately going to be wrong. Yeah. Like, I mean, the strange world saying that the Klingon War killed 100 million people. It's like, okay, either the Federation is huge. And a hundred million people doesn't matter, or a hundred million people die in an unbelievably catast- in a catastrophic war, and it is irrelevant ten years later. And I think I did my best with it when I just said it killed like a hundred thousand people. I think my take is the Mabenga's a hundred million people is just overall casualties, civilian displacement. Like I think Mabenga's hundred million number fa- is actually factoring in things like the Suleiman crisis and Klingon invasions elsewhere. Mm-hmm. It's like how people say World War Two begin should begin in 1937, include the Sino-Japanese War. I mean, I heard somebody argue that you, World War Two should actually be 1931 to 1949, which we, but yeah, I, I mean that that that's the, that is the kind of history wankery of that. Well, yeah, and I, but I, but, yeah. So you so you mentioned the Suleiman Crisis, which is something it, it, for for those of our listeners who maybe haven't. 
ha- who haven't read the series, but you should. Um, could, like, if you want to go into a little bit that about that, because it is a fun, it's a fun way of like integrating something that was done in a later series into what happens chronologically later. And yeah, one of the most I say tricks. One of the clef- the things I'm pleased pleased about is a lot of Edge of Midnight's. Every great power struggle needs its minor players. That's just yeah. for good drama. It needs its minor characters. And I drew a lot of these from the FASA guides, the old RPG guides, which has a great ideas like the Asperax and Kobax and the Triangle. But a great source was all of these people we meet in Enterprise, who we never see again. Yeah. Like what's going? Where the, what happened to the Tandarans? What happened to the Sulaban? What happened to the Anolians? What happens to these Aurelians and the Akali and all these people? We're the Zindi. The Zindi. <laughs> I have reference to it later, but um, the uh, one of the Marine General when Starfleet Marine. So there's a later on. This is a spoiler for anybody who does read it. Is um, there's a Tandaran civil war. Mm-hmm. And there are attacks on Federation colonies in the region. So Westcott has to send in the Marines. And the and Space William Westmoreland is a Zindi reptile. Oh, great. Excellent. Because he's an excellent. Because the Zindi, they just, they're diasporic. It's been a century. It's the Federation way. The, the before institutional reasons, the Army and the Marines are a bit more, a bit less if weird about it than Starfleet is because the uh, Marines and the Army didn't really fight the Zindi. Long and short, yeah, William, Space William Westmoreland is a Zindi because I thought that would be fun. Yeah. There is, he, he gets, gives a whole, there's a light at the end of the tunnel speech and everybody literally, the whole room of journalists rolls their eyes because they just don't buy it. <laughs> but yeah, so I, the Zindi are in, but the Sulaban, because Enterprise, there is this massive Suleiman diaspora, and that the Cabal are only a really small part of it. And we get sense of this in Detain, the Dean Stockwell episode with the Tandarans. But I assume that diaspora continue to spread, and, you know, may have found some homes, but they're still persona non grata. And in the way that empires do, the Klingons realise that nobody is going to mind mm-hmm. if they just disappear them. Nobody except the Federation, of course. Yeah. And the Federation does its best... But it's still a tragedy to the Suleiman, and I, you know, I feel like my one of part of one of my de-Stalinization moments will be that Sturker's replacement, Kesh, um, enfranchises the Suleiman, so they're not slaves; they're just subjects, which is not great, but it's better than being a slave. Yeah. But it's. I feel like it was one of these moments. Where like this is really clever, but also quite morbid. Yeah. And I think people will disagree with me about characterizing the Klingons this way, but. I think it's what they do. They've got an empire to build. They've got an industry that needs to catch up with its neighbours. And the Sulaban are cheap labour. The Klingons of the 23rd century are different than I think what fit, like the, the gestalt consciousness of Klingons now is. Because yeah. I think there's... I think in like I think the more general fan circle, it is the, the, the TNG and DS9 Klingons are what people think of when they think of Klingons. The Klingons I'm writing are the Klingons from John Ford's The Final Reflection, which is the best book on the Klingons, and the book everyone who has ever had these thoughts about the Klingons needs to read. Because these Klingons are devious, they're talented, they're, inte- they're, they're intelligent, and they're 
does they care they care about honor, but they care about other things besides honor and fighting. Yeah. And that's just more interesting. Starfleet Museum by Mazo Okazaki, which is basically like Edge of Midnight, if I could draw Starship diagrams, is really good stuff. But it only really run it's like the Earth's Robin of War before Enterprise had come out and bridging that with um TOS. But in that, his run up to the is basically like the Klingons can't do Klingons are functioning capable of running an economy, which I just think is bad. You don't create interstellar society unless you have a basic grasp of some form of economics. You struggle to create a planetary society if you don't have a basic don't have a basic grasp of economic theory. So like Klingons have economics, they just don't have a lot of resources. Yeah, I, I like that. I find that to be a lot more interesting of that like Kronos is not particularly resource rich, but so they've got they are constantly trying to acquire more. Yeah, and I think it might be more even more than that. I think well the heavy point of the first part of book two is that the Klingons have a lot of raw resources. They can trade for worked resources. Mm-hmm. So which basically means they're dependent on access to third party markets. They need access to places like Orion and Metalis and the Anolian states and the Triangle, because they need to do trade if not with the Federation, but with other people like the Cardassians and the Romulans and power, great powers that the Federation hasn't made contact yet with yet, like the Temerians or the Solians. The Klingons need to get need to train with them for stuff. Gosh, I, I'm like, I'm like remembering it's like, oh yeah, we're still like a couple years away from the Romulans rejoining the interstellar stage. And I'm looking, uh, that's, that's something I'm looking forward to as the, I, I think as, for better or worse, the Romulan <laughs> fanboy here. Uh, yeah, I mean, the Romulans are interesting. I have a completely new... My take of the Romulans is very different from other people's. Um, we'll see that when it comes through. Um, but I also don't like imagining the Klingons as being very aggressive as an aggression. You know, I think the, I like the idea that, you know, Klingon for hello is what do you want? But I don't like the idea that like they don't do diplomacy. I just think it's that their idea of diplomacy is different. I think I have this whole point where it's like the Klingon Klingons view politics as war by other means, whereas humans view war as politics by other means. To reverse clout switching. Hmm. Which means that Klingon diplomacy is basically about how much you can fuck over your enemy before you have to fight him. So the yeah. idea of peace yeah, it's, it's peace, the concept of a peace negotiation is basically what, how much can you learn, how much you can see before you actually do the thing. Or how much can you learn about whether or not this fight is worth having? Or, you know, they have farmers. People, it's a simple one. Klingons have farmers. Everyone's got, someone's got to be a farmer. Speaking of uh, d- diplomats and everything, when does Curzon Dax show up? <laughs> so, his... What's Emony, which is the gymnast, is around. Yeah. Curzon... Well, the thing is that Curzon is a young... She's banging. She's McCoy. banging McCoy in, in yeah. Georgia. You see, the thing is, of course, is that Curzon is a young man at Kitama. so Curzon isn't going to show up before she's right at the end. You know, the only okay. primary cast member I have actually introduced as a main character is Chekhov, and Chekhov yeah. will probably be the only one. I might do a bit from some um, memorandums that Hura writes when she's at Starfleet Command in the twenty two eighties, but I was like, I'll pick one person. And I was like, Chekhov is the kind of person who would have written a self-satisfying biography. So, <laughs> I mean, Kirk, Kirk is an admiral, but I mean, it doesn't. I mean, doesn't seem like he's particularly 
tasked on the yeah well the because Kirk will factor it. I think my first, the first mention of a of Kirk as a ship's captain will come in chapter sixteen, actually, referencing um, the his time as captain of the scout second aware. But I think basically, is what would people actually think of Kirk? Is that Kirk is it's like Douglas Bader or you know a fighter ace or like an a Thomas Cochrane? Is that how much of what he says happened actually happened? How much can be verified? How much is also an invention of propagandists? There was a, a thick guy I, I wrote that's sitting on a hard drive somewhere that I, I think I wrote this probably like, it would have been last year, but I, I have to imagine that there's something, there's like a, Starfleet has like an office that is like there to like put metadata on like mission reports and just like catalog it. That's called the archive. And I <laughs> Yeah, and and like th- there's got to be like a team that is there to like sort it out, and I just imagine that they have to put the Enterprise ones all in like their own little spot where because it's like this is so ridiculous that we can't we if we didn't have the sensor data we could never say this was well true. I mean I was in an archive on Friday for the in mm-hmm. town for a lot of British Army papers, and yeah even in real life there are people like that like um, Ordwin Gate. T. Lawrence, where if he didn't have proof, you wouldn't believe it. This is my take. There are a lot of people who say, oh, a lot of the ridiculous things, they must be made up. And my bold take at Edge of Midnight, I run with this, a lot of the absolutely cr- dumb stuff happened. Like, like the alien, like, there's like, going to be a bit in the next chapter. Basically, like, we sent, we sent under the dull routine of Starfleet. It's like a list of ship's reports running through and it's like ship swap shipping cap shipping cap to space amoeba size of village black hole near x spits up planet from 50 years in the past that was considered lost with colony on it just random shit like that and then at the bottom is just like the standard starfleet routine yeah it, it's because that's just the routine in the same way that if you lived in 17th century if you lived in 18th century england half the stuff you hear about america and the south asia just sounds insane like oh the fuck, like, that's just, and vice versa, is that things in Europe sound insane to people who, to the indigenous communities. That's just what distance feels like. I mean, we have wolverines over here. What's that, going on with that? that? What's, what's going it? on with that? Frankly, like, people say that, like, Australia is, like, the crazy megafauna place, and it's like, the, we have we have wild big cats here. Like, you know, Stop. like, they're, they're just, like, <laughs> we, have, we have cougars. Like, this is, I, I mean, like, I, I have... My my grandparents lived up in the mountains, and literally, I remember as like I would have been like eleven or twelve, like down there in like the living room, and they have like these big glass windows so you could see out into the, the wonderful, nice mountain forest, and like that's a bear. Fuck that. <laughs> but yeah, so like I, for a start, I have to basically go. Yeah, the Ogadian thing happened, I guess, basically. Yeah. I haven't written that bit yet. I really wanted to just write it. This is basically me, Seamus Diffinish, going, I know what I tell you guys. That's We're just very lucky they did it when they did it. Yeah, it's... I mean, yeah, I think that is, like, that is a fun... That is a, it's a weird and fun part of writing Star Trek is that sometimes the god-level the god level aliens happen. Yeah, and it's like... So, you've got that. So I think, yeah, a lot of writing Kirk will essentially come also down to the fact that um, Jim Kirk doesn't like doing interviews. So there's yeah. not a lot of historical record about him. A lot of it comes from other sources. Like, is his... Even there's a whole lot... Because there's, there's the thing about, you know, the autobiography of Captain Kirk. 
you know, the one you could buy in stores, exists in Edge of Midnight. But it's like how you can buy the diaries of George S. Patton, but they're the diaries of George S. Patton as edited by his wife, who wanted to make sure that he seemed like a manly man and wasn't terrified and wasn't full of massive anxieties. <laughs> so that's the thing, is who edited... Jim Coe's autobiography was almost certainly edited by his nephews or somebody to make sure it made him come out in a good light. Yeah, I, I th- and, and that's, I'm, that's part of history as it is, is just like that we never very rarely are getting like the first hand account of things. We're all we're often getting stuff as it's been filtered or edited. Yeah. I did. But one thing that like I enjoy about history is that sometimes it's fucking stupid. Yes. Um, so let's talk about how Sturka will die. <laughs> so Sturka's death. So Sturka is for, for those who um, do not know, Sturka is the chance of Klingon Empire after Laurel, slight interregnum between them. He is um, Klingon Stalin, essentially. Cult of personality, massive paranoia, absolutely transforms the Klingon state. And in the highest tradition the of 1960s films, Sturka is played by Peter Cushing of Grand Rock Tarkin fame. <laughs> Sturka, the cat, every, after or, the Organian War, everybody is kind of his time is running out. And um, he catches a form of dysentery. And um, for lack, uh, I'll quote the Edge of Midnight site here, which is um, He was found the next morning in his chambers, having died from severe blood loss after suffering from extreme diarrhea before undergoing complete gastrointestinal excretion. <laughs> For the record, that means that he um, shat his insides out, which is uh, horrible. Yeah. I mean, it, there is not a more historically accurate way for a soldier for, to die. There's no historically accurate way for... Suppose people just killed over it. This is the other thing. Is that TOS has a fuckload, there's a fuckload of intergalactic diseases running around wild, like Denisian fever, Rigelian fever... Like, there's a lot of actual diseases I've just mentioned in the original series that never come up again. Which largely implies that med- medical science is yet to catch up to them. Which means that, yes, a man can shit out his entire intestinal system and die. Hope no one's listening to this while cooking. Anyway. Uh, yeah. I, I generally think that, the, like, the, the show, we've already prepared them for the fact that they probably shouldn't either be cooking or with their kids when they listen to the Yeah, show, don't, don't do that. But then... We have yeah. a war crimes air horde for crying out loud. But then, of course, I had to give it the proper layer of historical farce, which is the Klingon, the Klingon Carry Council find out he's died this way, realise that it's going to look really terrible to everyone if he died this way. So they they shove his guts back inside him and put him in the High Council chamber for a show trial. Except there's the middle of Klingon summer. It's boiling. Um, They do this show trial and then they get some young man to challenge into a duel and stab him. And when he stabs him, all the build-up of the, the decomposing gases escape and his body explodes. And that is based off the funeral of William the Conqueror. Because William the Conqueror was not embalmed properly. So he didn't fit in his coffin because the body expanded and then it exploded during the funeral ceremony. Oh, but it's bad. I and mean, it's, it's, it's a point. It's history yeah. always feels insane. And it should feel yeah. insane because life, a lot of things that happen in the real world, if you put them in a fictional book, people would say are too ridiculous. I think that's one of the, that's one of the, the, the small joys of like reading history is there's stupid stuff there that a writer couldn't think up. 
<laughs> it's and it's like oh this happened this really happened uh, you know it, so to to loop it back to the other side of leaders um i do fi- i do find the 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 procession of presidents <laughs> uh an andorian getting really sick and deciding to become a presbyterian of all things yeah um, I just wanted to give him the whole thing it came up is because I when I was planning Sarah Hallatt's decline for some reason I ended up watching the clip of the RFK funeral gosh and they because the RFK well the RFK funeral train if you've ever seen the photo exhibition of people watching seeing the RFK funeral train travel to his final resting place and it's one of these like gobsmack like really poignant, beautiful pieces of fil- of um, photographic art of all these people just lined up on the tracks, children, adults, you know, grown men in weeping tears as RFK's train goes through the American countryside. Mm-hmm. And I was looking at pictures of that, and I watched the RFK funeral, thinking, I want that's I kind of like a place Sarah that has with the Suleiman community, but I still wanted that battle him with a republic bit. So it was like, yeah, he becomes a massive godbotherer. It is because I think that would be funny because we always see yeah. humans adopting other races' characteristics, and they would go the other way. Yeah, I have a, a bit that is half finished about um, after Klingon human after Klingon Federation relationships are normalized in the twenty fourth century. Uh, Klingons being exposed to professional wrestling. Oh, professional and, wrestling, and find... sumo wrestling—they love that stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's the it, like the 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 like the some. Anthrop- Klingon declaring it the greatest, you know, the greatest thing that the, that the humans have produced apart from Shakespeare. My favorite gag on that is that the first Klingon ambassador of the Federation is a massive Superman nerd. Oh, that's great. That's and like um, when the Federation president Lord McLaren goes to the formal first formal dinner there, which everyone gets, everyone underestimates how strong Klingon blood wine is. <laughs> so everyone is extremely drunk at this thing. Even the Klingons are, because it turns out Bloodwine does something different in a slightly higher oxygen environment. Oh, God. So every, everybody's really drunk. And, like, the ambassador takes a very, a slightly, a very drunk president into, this, into his study to show, and just starts showing it, like, handing her swords. And he's like, and this is my prized possession. And it's Action Comics number one <laughs> in a massive gold frame. And she just goes, fucking Superman. I just think the Klingons would love Superman. I think yeah. I think they go in for it, but yeah, they the run through of presidents. Well, it was kind of an accident and on purpose. It was an accident in that I had Baruka go, but then I needed Sarah Hallett to go because I don't think Sarah Hallett would have done Akama, and then I needed Westcott to serve one, technically two, but only really one term. Yeah, get the get the Teddy Roosevelt in there. Yeah. But it helps because it helps. What it does is having four presidents in the space of four years, and two of them be basically forced out of office, mm-hmm. really underlines why the Federation feels quite unstable in the original series. Yeah, in that Paris is Paris is just perceived, and you know that's why you know the guy, the gov- the first minister of Ardana and. The, the the cloud miners is such a dick to Kirk. It's why 
They're worried about Altair Civil War. It's why Journey to Babel is so dangerous. It's because everybody just smells weakness at the center. I'm I'm sorry. What did I miss? So we got like so I, I, we've got like 45 minutes of uh, of me asking the really nerdy okay, okay. questions here. Um, uh, listeners, uh, Anna is joining us a little Whoops, bit later. Uh, um, yeah. Uh, <laughs> <Hi> guys. <laughs> It's been one of those one of those weekends where you know you sit down on the couch with some crafts and then your grandmother calls you and then somehow it's three p.m. and you look at your phone and realize that Justin has texted you two hours ago or an hour ago being like, "You okay, bud? <laughs> I'm here." I mean, I'm I'm just happy I have a voice today. I spent last night at a sports bar screaming. Um, I, I wouldn't recommend that. I, this is the life I chose, unfortunately, as a sports fan. <laughs> All right. Um, John, this is Anna. Anna is uh, one of one of my co-hosts here on Nice Bad to meet Pod. you. Uh, nice to meet you, too. Uh, Anna, I think, it, like, it has not read any of Edge of Midnight, but is... But I, I, lo- would say... I watched a lot of Star Trek. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and thought okay. a lot about it, and you so, know all of those things. So, so I think sorry. This, we're, we're gonna we're gonna move into the the part where um, we're gonna move into the part where John. We're gonna try and sell autumn. All right, all right. Okay, because this is right. a show first and at fo- first and foremost about tying your friends down into a chair, uh, clockwork oranging them with their eyes open, and forcing them to enjoy stuff. <laughs> okay, this could go very. This could go very left wrong very quickly but i will start with a simple question which is how do you feel about history anna oh oh i mean depends it depends on what history we're talking about um i tend to be i tend to be more interested in like sociological history than like warfare history tm okay um like you know the the you know like the interplay between like society and technology and politics and stuff like that, less like, and then there was World War Two. <laughs> well, Edge of okay. So overall, Edge of Midnight is a I think is best characterized as a political history of the Klingon Federation Cold War, the original series. So drawing the line from Starship Discovery. Okay. To the undiscovered country. All right. And a lot of people see this and they see the tr- or a lot of the content around it with starships and stuff and go, oh, it's that kind of thing. No. Now, you see, this is a book about that history where I have a whole section discussing why Klingons love farmers. All right. All right. And why Klingon farmers hate the military. <laughs> and I have a whole... It's basically... I, I want to make. I want. It's all about making why the the Klingons act different and the Federation act differently in Discovery and Strangely Worlds and the original series and the films make sense. All right, and that means explaining why the Klingon Empire feels the need to fight the Federation yeah. and why that's more than just the glory of conquest. Why that things like socially. The cut socially, they they need to modernize the country. They need to modernize the empire. That means they need resources. Why they feel uncomfortable with allowing slavery in certain circumstances 
it means looking at um, why Klingons might not want to join the armed forces, why they might go against the Chancellor. Mm -hmm. It means understanding why a Klingon senior servant, senior government official, when he discovers that the currency has collapsed, steals the gold, steals the Latin reserves, and fucks off into the dark. <laughs> that is one of my favorite bits. <laughs> it is my favorite bit. It's like, the economy's collapsed. I guess I'll just leave with all the money. Yeah. So there's that. It's looking. I wanted to write that Star Trek with a sort of holistic way you're meant to do as a historian and think about why people do unbelievably stupid things. And and also, presumably, that kind of, like, sets the road for, like, the conflicts between the Klingons and the Romulans and, like, Kittimer and things like that as oh. well. Because you know, it's, you know, it's, it's interesting because we've got, we've got the, like, we've got the Doyleist <laughs> explanations for, like, all of this, which is that, you know, at various points in history, people have been writing, like, people wrote different things into the Klingons, but, you know, putting the Watsonian bent on it of, like, let's make all of these different, like, all these different things make sense. Um, and and yeah. ideally not like Enterprise did it. <laughs> I... Thing is, is I'm a big fan of Enterprise because what Enterprise does is gives you this great canvas yeah. of a very disorganized and very multipolar alpha and beta yeah, quadrant. Yeah, and then essentially later it's gone. <laughs> and when it goes, it's like I'll tell you where it went. It's under the Batleth. The Klingons have conquered them all. I'm sorry. <laughs> and it's but it's an interesting thing to play on. But it's adding. What you talked about, which is the sense, that Watsonian sense of history in that things are different. People, like, one of my favourite bits on how things are different is I have a bit in the run, in the last couple of chapters where the author has to explain that how people interpret the prime directive is different. Yeah, yeah. Like, in Kirk's, it is not, you know, even though Strangely Worlds makes us go, oh, they've made, they created the prime directive. That doesn't mean that it's like in TNG yeah. and DS9 where the Prime Directive is a political ideology. Yeah. Like in TNG and DS9, the Prime Directive is interpreted as our foreign policy is built around this principle. Yeah, and then and then in TNG, or sorry, in uh, original series, you've got things like Kirk being like, "Yeah, you know, this society is completely stagnant, so it doesn't count. We're gonna we're gonna meddle like fuck, guys." <laughs> yeah, because or even stuff like. A Taste of Armageddon, where, by interpretation of Prime Directive in TNG and DS9, they should leave it alone, but Robert Fox turns around and goes, I have orders for the president to fuck around with these people. <laughs> yeah. And you know what? That's fine. Robert Fox was right. We didn't have to hand it to him, but those people weren't fucked up. Yeah. But that's... The author has to explain it, and immediately that gives, in a sense, history that things have changed meaning and have changed importance. Yeah. Mm. Interesting. I regret to inform you that it's got a lot of stuff about starships, and I can only apologize. Oh no, no, no! The star, um, the starship shit not... is like absolutely, absolutely. That, that, don't apologize for that. That's my shit. So, so oh, there, okay. There is a right. bit in the first book of Edge of Midnight about um, warp engines and technological compatibility. Oh, fascinating! Oh yes, the funniest shit I've ever. Oh read. yeah, the the, the Eastbuyer drive versus the Marvik drive, which is me explaining why they have all these chips in Discovery <laughs> that are all gone in ten years, <laughs> and it's all very simple. Which is that um, they figure out a new engine, 
that they could build from existing technology in the 2330s. And they're like, we're going to make the whole fleet run on these. We can upgrade existing ships to use it. It's going to be great. We're going to overhaul technology. And then five years later, they crack the technology the Enterprise. And it completely blows everything out of the water, but it's really expensive. So they sort of go, well, we'll build those, but we'll keep running everything else on the old system, <laughs> except the old system's shit. <laughs> <laughs> It's really shit, and the more you add new tech to it, the shitter. You ever have bought like a second-hand PC? Yeah. With a bad GPU, and you just keep slotting new RAM and new SSDs and a bigger graphics card into it, and you're like, it's fine because it's an alright GPU, but it was an alright GPU five right, years right. ago, and now it can't handle the strain. And when you open a Microsoft Word file, it sounds like you're trying to run City Skylines too. <laughs> That's essentially what all the ships in Discovery are like, except for the Discovery. Yeah, yeah. Or, or like, and, you know, it's fascinating because we've got all these things in Trek where, like, they accidentally establish canon with the ships. Like, where you end up at Wolf 359 and you're like, why are all these, like, random-ass ships here? And it's like, oh, well, because they're all, they bet they're in the fleet. <laughs> well, they've been let's not get started on that. <laughs> let's not get started on that. <laughs> the, the, the fan fiction collective uh, to, to la- for again lack of a better term of tranquility press yeah there is we have engaged the borg which which is um, i really really recommend any of you listeners who like edge of midnight or like the battle of the 359 read um my colleagues andy and eric created it's basically it's world war z but for 359 okay, okay. if edge of midnight is um god what is the what is the close equivalent the Cimmerallian, but Star okay, Trek. Okay, and that's a quote. That works. Yeah, yeah. I've got the Cimmerallian. Sure. That yeah. works. I, I, I can vibe with that. Um, yeah, in the sense of well, yeah, it's not. Anyway, but yeah. So that's a. We'll talk about that later. But in terms of ships, a lot of the Edward Midnight stuff with ships is more about the politics okay. of starships, okay. which I think is the underestimated element of all. There's a lot about starship design, but there's also. All about why is a starship the way it yeah. is? In the sense that, for example, why does Starfleet have a lot of big cruisers and not a lot of small ships? Because small ships do tactical things and nobody likes to pay for that because it means they're being militaristic. <laughs> <laughs> it's like the best explanation, the best, oh, this is all politics thing is, there's a bit in the first book where it's basically, why is Starfleet intelligence so fucking shit? <laughs> <laughs> it's and, the, and the answer is very simple, which is all four of the big four powers, Earth, Vulcan, Andor, and Tellera, and the Tellerites. <laughs> which, like, let, let me say, let me say, what a slate of four species to found the Federation. Like, like it's like, how did these four species actually come together to build the Federation? It's just nuts. I mean, you say that, but, you know, the French, the Belgians, right. the Germans, and the Italians put the right. EU together, and... The 13 colonies managed to agree on enough things to declare independence. So, like, it's not impossible. The supreme... Pa- the power of that other guy is incredible, especially when that when that other guy is a Romeo. Right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the, to, to quote another podcast, the universal theory of fuck that guy. Yeah. Shout out to Lions Love by Donkeys. <laughs> but, um... Yeah, the problem with that is that all four of these powers have had terrible experiences with intelligence services. You know... Vulcan has the High Command, the Adorians have their guys, Earth has the CIA and the KGB. 
So basically, none of their governments want to create a big, powerful intelligence mm-hmm. community. Which means they create no intelligence community. Yeah. Or, like, I could also see all four of them having just, like, wildly disparate views on what an intelligence organization should do and, like, is meant for and oh. should work. Yeah. And it, it leads to basically the fact that Starfleet Intelligence has no... Nobody's really in charge of the whole thing. It's not really got any geographic organization. There's no real oversight <laughs> beyond you're not allowed to spend any money. And um, every time someone's just reorganizing it, they get accused of being a warmongering psychopath. <laughs> it's a sense of, it's like, basically, if anybody goes, we should organize this, somebody yells Kissinger at them like an insult. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> which results, I think, in my famous anecdote, which is that they discover that a Starfleet intelligence um, agent has been... His, all of his intelligence is actually premonitions from a psychic on Agelius, who is also his boyfriend. <laughs> and that meshes so well with like the advent of Section 31, too, where it's like, okay, well, we'll, we'll make this thing and then we'll just like, m- like mind hole it. <laughs> well, I Section 31 is only mentioned a couple of times. In yeah. I mention it as being reorganized after the control yeah. incident and it's basically on the board as the covert operations unit it's it's the equivalent of like mi6 in britain or like the active operations in departments of the cia yeah that's how it's on the board that's what people understand when people say section 31 it's like oh it's all hush hush in section 31 i think sections that the reason it's not known in the tng era is that section 31 gets shut down after kitten mm-hmm. And basically, I do this because it leaves it open to you to go, does Section 31 exist like it does in Beta Canon or in Discovery, or does it not exist yeah. at all? Yeah. My interpretation has always been that Section 31 is more fascinating if you imagine it as being completely separate from the Federation yeah. government. I kind of had yeah. the headcanon where, right. like, where, like, Section 1 is, like, actually exists in Discovery, and then, like, that is just completely, like, rogue organization in the interim period, like, between, like, Kittimer and, like, what we see in Deep Space Nine, that is just, like, off there doing its own thing entirely off the grid. And, like, that's my my personal headcanon on it, at least. I mean, the gag, the sort of side gag, obviously, is that Starfleet Intelligence is really effective between when they knock out Section 31 and when they disorganize it, dissolve it completely. Basically, because all of all the really competent people end up working above yeah. board, where they yeah. don't get twi- they don't end up becoming twisted into NSA um, greater good techno yeah. freaks. I mean, basically. hell, they managed to find they managed they managed to find like Spock on Romulus with like a blurry satellite photo from like several systems away. But I like the idea, like. Why is it that Starfleet doesn't know what the Romulans look like and has doesn't know the Romulans have Klingon yeah. warships? And oh, it's because Starfleet intelligence is just shit. Yeah, I. This is quite bad. So as as I said earlier, we did our we did our uh, episode of the Maquis uh, on Friday night, and I, I was the space traditions. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and the one thing that I wanted to roll in from our conversation that episode is going to come out like three months <laughs> after this one, so you know, cont- we. We have such a backlog that it's ridiculous. Um, but one thing that we got talking about there was that I think that something that is present in the Edge of Midnight is that I think that there is 
in fan in a lot of fan circles especially vocal ones that there is the desire to see the federation as rotten at the core mm-hmm. that like that that oh, the I'm federation so must be, the federation is too good to be true but there is the federation as it is presented at edge of midnight which has an incredibly idealistic core but has to face reality, which I find a lot more interesting. Yeah. Well, the the core of the Federation Edge of Midnight is you've got to imagine, basically, that it's it's LBJ's Great Society on Drugs. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's Kennedy. It's, it's that Kennedy LBJ Civil Rights Great Society. Things will get better, and you. And you don't have a choice in that ma- in the matter. Kind of ideology of the world is not perfect now, but we're not going to stop making it better. Yeah, and that means that sometimes they make mistakes and they do dirty things. And the principal rule of how I run the Federation is that the arc of history has to bend towards justice, right? Yeah, because that's. But it means that basically people do do dodgy things in the Federation, but the system never throws the system. We'll never throw them out for it. We'll never accept it. So Broadhurst breaks the rules and gets caught and gets kicked out of office. The dangerous element for him doing a round contra in space is not that the system is okay with it. It's that events vindicate him in the future. Yeah. yeah. It's not It's not the system's fault that people decide he's right. It's the fault of events, largely yeah. Klingons. But also other acts of the Federation mean that his warnings about Klingon expansionism approved right but it's not because he the system does what it's meant to do yeah i i always i always use cypher as also just being like something that's almost like just too big that that it's you know it's such a large organization and so scattered that like oversight becomes a problem too yeah and it's that's one of the ways i do that is i make starfleet smaller than a lot of people imagine it yeah and i make it organized but it's that problem with writing, the Federation has to seem better than our government. But if you make it perfect, it's, not only is it not interesting, is it mm-hmm. just becomes too good to be true. Yeah. yeah. They've got to make mistakes. They've got to bungle Akama. They've got to elect a president who's just not up to the job. They've got to... Distrust has to exist within the system. There has to be a demand for reform, a demand for change. You know, I am, And there has to be scandals that make everybody feel bad and put everyone in a bad light afterwards. Yeah. You know, I'm yeah. toying with now an idea workshopping and I'm not sure I can make it work is to run a an augment scare in the style of the lavender scare. Mm-hmm. Or the style of the red scare. Interesting. The pro- the problem with running that of course is that you have this problem with the text of Trek, which is that everything everyone says about genetically modified people is true, except for with Julian Bashir. Oh, and the the augments have been the augments are something that have been like bothering TM me lately. Um, well, it's mainly like, strangely Wells' fault, but like, fine. yeah, I, I think it's I think it's the I think it's a big bugbear that the that they they established this one thing in T like in the original series in DS Nine, and it's just they refuse to they refuse to make it. Yeah, it, it's it's so bound to the future that yeah it, but it's yeah, also your queer world. analogy can't also be your nazi analogy yeah. yeah yeah also also that yeah yeah and i mean the the way i might square the circle is that the i'm gonna have to workshop it so none of this is final but it's basically that the argument scare happens because 
the Klingon government basically gives the Kusha, the genetically unmade Klingons, rights. There's this big scare that, oh, all the genetically modified communities of the Federation are going to rise to join the Klingons, which is just patently not true. Yeah. A lot of dodgy politicians don't cover themselves with much glory. Mm. And you have... the I'm not happy with it. This is the point. I... Is that I want to create this event where the Federation doesn't cover itself with a lot of glory. Yeah. Yeah. But doesn't undermine the... I, doesn't undermine the optimism it's fascinating too because the the augments are something that are like engaged with so differently throughout the course of star trek um i mean they've, they've gotten like popular again as a, as a topic but like you, you have then also you've also got season two of tng where there's that like the planet with the, the that like where pulaski has the is trying to like save the gene modding children yeah, yeah the genetically modified children and i'm like what that okay okay cool like this is also canon guys this is also canon like like star star trek also made like super children in tng i mean the rule i might go with is that actually the all the rules against arguments are an earth law not a federation law that's been my thing is that like per, my my personal headcanon has always been that everyone else in the Federation is fine with genetic experimentation. It's just Earth decided to like unleash their trauma on an entire uh, astropolity. Yeah, I mean to be fair, Europe did unleash its own trauma on Nazism on everybody else, but yeah, yeah. that was correct. This is the this is the other problem, of course, which is that. It's not like, oh, it's an unsubstantiated trauma. Carnegie and Singh did conquer and serve the globe yeah. and it stayed his direct intention to do it again. <laughs> yeah. Uh, this is the this is the underlying problem with any allegory for the argument scare as an allegory for the Red Scare. Well, the only way to do it, of course, is to actually treat it more like the Red Scare where the majority of people who are being accused of it are not even genetically modified or have no relationship with the argument movement and Khan. Yeah. I have to workshop it, but that's the sort of place I go for analogies. And you can get there what I'm trying to struggle with, which is that the Federation has to be better. And it has to be aspiring to be better, but it can't be perfect. Yeah, yeah. It's not interesting if it's perfect. Yeah, no, it's it's yeah. much... I mean, this isn't really... I, I hesitate to call it spoilers, but in the most recent chapter, um, Ken Westcott takes office... Uh, who you have? I, I see the poster on the back on <laughs> the closet back there. All right. Which, which? Nice, uh, well, I thought if you know if it's 1968 and Gene Roddenberry is cast as a Federation president and he's got a limited budget, what Hollywood actor is he going to get for a president? It's going to be Sidney Poitier. Yeah. And like, and and how I like in the teasings of Westcott is that like. It's a very Seamus Devonish, the, the the narrator of Edge of Midnight, has a very favorable Westcott, and history seems to look very favorably on him. But it's also noted that, like in the first chapter, where he resolves the Akamar crisis, it's in a very real politic way. Mm. Yeah, and, he and, he gives up on the big he gives up on the big legacy with both his predecessors, which is basically a moralistic embargo on the Klingon Empire. And that will have come. Think about Westcott as well is that he's viewed on favorably, basically because he didn't run for a third term. Yeah. Okay. If he'd ran for that third term, all the everything that went wrong would have been viewed as his fault. But because <laughs> his successor is just not simply, I feel bad about 
Lorna McLaren as a character because her fan cast is Lucille Ball. Um, she's a very the idea is to be a very accomplished politician, but she's basically she's just not up for it. <laughs> Which... She's a bit like Jimmy Carter. Yeah, I so how many of the presidents are like just because it's like this is I, TOS wasn't wasn't my first entry into Star Trek and the so the like all the Beta Canon stuff wasn't really a huge thing for me. Like, how many of the presidents though are drawn from Beta Canon materials? Or so the only presidents who are in the Alpha are Hiram Ross, who's the one in Star Trek Four, the bald guy, <laughs> and Raka Hattori, who is Kurtwood Smith's Robocop guy. But in big glasses, which is great. Um, beta Cannon. Ken Westcott is Beta Cannon. Okay. Him okay. being Sidney Pratier is me. <laughs> but he's clearly written as a JFK analogy, which is how I treat him. Um, less affairs. McLa- but McLaren, because the thing is, a lot of the Beta Cannon stuff overlaps on presidents. Oh, mm-hmm. um, yeah. Because it's not all written the same time with my different people. So one of the other 2060s presidents is somebody called Lorne McLaren, named, of course, after Lorne Green of the original Battlestar Galactica. <laughs> and I just didn't want to have four male pre- presenting presidents in a row. Yeah. So I made it Lorne McLaren. And it got to be Lucille Ball, so it's happy. And then Chav Log, who is basically written as space, as Tellerite Reagan, but he's from Mars, which is wild. <laughs> There's a Tellarite X community on Mars. They elect a Tellarite representative because president. He's from Beta Canon. But then Pagos Shabellos and um yeah, is me, purely me, as are Sirahala, Baruco, and Broadhurst. Okay. But it, it's that's the thing, you dip and dive and you draw some elements. Shabellos comes from Shabellos exists as an opposition leader. And then I was reading the um, I think it's called Echoes, the TOS TMP comic. It's a TMP comic where essentially alternate versions of Chekhov and Uhura from a universe that's a bit more like Star Wars gets dumped into R1. Interesting. Okay. It's a good comic. And there's a whole instant of the Robinon border. And the president in that um, comic theme is an Adorian Shen. Okay. So I was like, yeah, I'll make it. I'll make it um, Pagros Chabillus, who is basically been trying to be president for like 10 years at this point, finally gets it, manages to basically ride on the wave of everything McLaren did, but everybody ignored her for, and then loses a party's nomination for not being hard on the Klingons enough. <laughs> Interesting. But yeah, so there's a, lot of, there's a lot of dipping in and out yeah. of beta cannon, basically just to get what I want. Yeah, I mean, yeah, that's, I was like, because it's one of those things of just like, there is a lot of like, it's just there was so there was so much of it. None of it agrees because nobody, I'm for better or worse, nobody was talking to each other. Um, it also doesn't have to agree with itself. Yeah, yeah. it's beta can you can do what you want. Yeah, exactly. I disagree. There are sections of Edge of Midnight which are massively contradictory. The other thing that I that I enjoy, like another big part of it, I enjoy is the the very human or, or very um, unshielded responses of like. Keep, uh, of people in power being bitches to each other, <laughs> like for lack of well, a better. Give me term. an example. Give me an example. Which one do you think? Oh, uh, I, I mean, like to, to think of like most recently um, is Westcott saying to Rittenhouse, "You can call me Mister President." Well, that was because Ken Westcott needs his 
they call me Mr. Tibbs moment. Oh yeah, of course. But it's still I like I think like the like every time that like like one of the like like either like uh, like the Starfleet uh like like the CNC of Starfleet like writes a memo or something is tends to be just rather funny of just like they're talking about like you know we can't do this or we have or, or like Klingons have outpaced us here. The thing a lot of people don't understand about history is that most people are really bitchy. Yeah. Especially once you get to a position of power. Yeah, once you're in a position of power, you assume that you're the only person in the room who understands what the stakes are. Mm-hmm. You just assume everyone's a moron, and you act as such. And it means you're terrible. And it's it's great drama. It's a nice... It's also a great way to push tension up without having to be like, oh, the shot's being fired. Like, no, these people, at the height of power, hate each other, and that's going to have consequences for everybody down below. Like, mm-hmm. you know... It's, I mean, simple things like, in terms of, like, visual, trouble with tribbles. <laughs> why does Kirk, like, Kirk, why Kirk doesn't like Barris, because Barris is a civilian official who's <laughs> telling him what to do. And then Bar- Kirk is only even more pissed off when his boss, Fitzpatrick, tells him he has to do what Barris <laughs> says. <laughs> but in the long term, in Edge of Midnight, Nils Barris is, like, one of the most important people of that period in history, because he basically outmaneuvers the Klingons in terms of d- economic development. Yeah. He's just better at it. He's just got, like, I describe him as, as a bit like um, George Marshall. He's just one of these people who just can look at a problem and come up with a solution. He's up 20 hours a day. He is a complete polyglot and polymass. But that just means he's also a bit of a dick. Yeah. But historically, like, everyone be, the historical record of Trump and Tribbles is. Why the hell did Kirk, why was Kirk so mean to him? He nearly blew this whole thing up in our faces. <laughs> yeah. Because, but that's just, we get it from Kirk's perspective, where Nils Barris is just an annoyance. And, uh, and like, you know, where, where he is, you know, dictating, and he, you know, and that's, that's a case where, you know, he's treating Kirk like Kirk's an idiot, and Kirk doesn't like that very much. Yeah. Because it's a simple thing where they both know more about the situation. They both yeah. think they understand what's going on better than the other party. Yeah. I love Trouble and Tribbles is such a multi faceted multi layered great piece of media. It's just I and 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 then also Trials and Tribulations, which makes it even better. <laughs> Trials and Tribulations makes it better because it's just it just turns the whole thing into a fast comedy, which yeah. is great. Yeah. Yeah. Also, one of my favorite little like oh, integrating like in this case the uh Kelvin verse timeline is uh <laughs> Admiral Paris, uh, oh, Christian yeah. Paris. Yeah, well, Christian Paris. Well, I was like, it's got to, she's got to go in. Yeah, I mean, know, I've, I've watched the expanse. She's got to go in. Yeah, it's she. She. I think. I think she's officially too famous for Star Trek now. But yeah, <laughs> I mean, my favorite Kelvin gag is I need to retcon it back in when I redo book one. Is Admiral Marcus is basically a retired shock jock. Like he gets hauled out by right wing media to be like, if they left, if I was still allowed to be in the in Starfleet, I would have fixed this all. Whereas the fact is that Admiral Marcus was retired for just being a horrible bastard. <laughs> <laughs> like they, they just look like you got to imagine Admiral Marcus working with Admiral Cornwell and just see and see why they went. Yeah, he's got to go because <laughs> he's uh, just a dick. Yeah. But I like to imagine he just hangs. He's just one of these people who like. He's a bit like Space Kissinger, and it says that the, the Romulan, everybody else thinks he's great, and it's his wise sage, but Starfleet 
just want nothing to do with him. It's, this all seems like a really uh, seems seems like something I should definitely check out. That it, you know, it seems like a interesting like way to engage with you know engage with Trek. I personally always end up in in kind of two camps of like sometimes sometimes you you know run up against things where you know where there's an inconsistency or something, and it's just like just don't worry about it. Like it's fine. Don't worry about it. And then sometimes you run across them and you're, it's like, no, this is interesting. Let's think about this. Because history is full of inconsistency. With, with the fact, you know, think about the fact that, like, you know, tech, theoretically, at least, everything on screen is canon. And, like, but some of it really massively conflicts. And, you know, sometimes the answer is, like, Shh, it's fine. It's fine. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and sometimes the answer is, like, maybe that, maybe there's something really interesting underlying that. Yeah, and it's all about what story you want to tell with that contract. It's like, I basically will never explain how money works. <laughs> which, is, which, I mean, yeah, nobody Calvin. can. <laughs> well, first, first you take, first you take the, the precious, precious latinum, and then you press it into worthless, worthless gold. That's how money works. <laughs> That's how you make money. But it's like, even then, it's... I'm and then you steal it from like, your brother. Yeah, always steal it from your brother. That's what they're there for. But even in this text, it's like people, there's money. The Klingons have money. The Federation sort of has money. But the, even the author basically goes, you all know how money works. L- Low-key also, I like the Ferengi are one of my favorite species. Um, just like, because they're such, they're such like awful goblins and I love them so much. Um, and I always, I'm always like there in the back of my head is like, did the Ferengi cause this? They did, didn't they? I don't really get to talk about the Ferengi in this, but a friend of mine, Nathan Galweg, wrote a fascinating article basically going, Ferengi economic warfare against the Dominion. (laughs) It's great. It's just like how the Ferengi secretly won the Dominion War. And it's basically, why is there a monument to lost profits in Lower Decks? Yeah. It's because the the Ferengi destroyed their economy to save the Dominion, to save the Alpha Quadrant. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the the other I I always keep I always keep wondering when we see a conflict in Star Trek, especially in the especially in the TNG era, or like just yeah in that in that vague era. I like I keep looking at like things where it's a conflict, and I'm like, how did the Ferengi make this worse behind the scenes? <laughs> Who did they sell guns to? Was it both sides? It was both sides. I mean, it's why I love the one with the bars and wormhole, where the Ferengi just turn up and dump a bunch of gold on the table, and they're like. <laughs> yeah, or or that or that that episode with um where in in uh, uh, DS nine where Bashir and O'Brien it's like one of the first real O'Brien must suffer episodes where Bashir and O'Brien were like working on you know eradicating that bioweapon and then end up you know like stranded oh, on the yeah. planet and O'Brien is you know O'Brien's infected with the bioweapon and Bashir has to use his you know like extra credit. Yo, engineering, <laughs> engineering expertise, and and it's like okay, this is probably just meaningless set dressing, but there are Ferengi containers in their hideout on that planet. Ah, uh, <laughs> so oh, that's it's like good. That's okay, good. okay. On the one hand, probably it was just a thing that they had in the warehouse to populate the set. On the other hand, the Ferengi absolutely sold them this shit. <laughs> oh yeah, no, that's perfect. I love that. But it's those kind of little details that allow you to string things together. Like the other one, 
uh, colleague with Tranquility Press, Eric, points out is that the the Bajoran militia, uh, Bajoran rebels, Klingon disruptor rifles. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the Klingons are clearly arming the Bajorans against the Cardassians. Yeah. 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 And and I mean and that's fascinating too because you've got the Klingons arming the Bajorans against the Cardassians, um, and yeah. then the Federation being just like, "What's a Bajoran?" But, well, we don't know. Up until they up until well, in a row. I don't know. We yeah. don't have, we don't have time to get into the Federation of Bajoran. <laughs> yeah, that's that's a whole uh, other yeah. uh, thing. Wrong. But it's that kind. Yeah, that's that kind of thread I like to pull up. Why is that there? What does it mean? You know. Especially with these original series gives you so little to play with as well. Right. Oh, yeah. Right. Because like I love I love original series. Um and like even the episodes that are just god awful, I genuinely, generally enjoy. Um because they're generally god awful in a really fun way. I, I love original series, but yeah, it's it's so tonally like it's it's just it was just made in a different time than Next Generation and the and the later ones. It's just got a different Television was just met. Television was just made differently. Oh, yeah, it was. Yeah, yeah it, the the difference between television then and television, even like in the nineties when the when that second set of uh tele or that second set of series was being made is about as different as when TNG and DS Nine was being made and what TV is now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which I think makes it like when something sticks out from original series, it's like because it stands the test of time it's nearly it's been nearly 60 years and it comes out i i think there's a reason why it's stuck around so long and it's it's interesting though because it means that like a lot of people who i feel i feel like a lot of people who are engaging with trek now have not really watched the original series which like i can get it's you know it is very tonally different what fascinates me is, as somebody who is um, depressingly 23, um, <laughs> a lot of people my age who are Trekkies watch the original series before they watch things like Voyager. Fascinating, yeah. I mean, that's not to not to attribute it to a huge thing, but I mean, a lot of... I mean, fandom is passed down. I think it's also how they come into it in that if you come into if you were coming into Trek when it was just on syndication, mm-hmm. you probably got it through TNG DS9 Voyager. But if you come into it through streaming, the first thing you see is the original series because of right. how they order yeah. it. Yeah. So you start there and you start with the man trap and somehow if you keep watching after that you're set. <laughs> yeah. I mean yeah, yeah if it, it's like the first like like however streaming puts it out, but if you get past those first three episodes and you're still going, yeah, you're you're if you if you get to the Corbinite maneuver you're hooked, basically. Yeah. By our our like because we did it like when when my dad was introducing us, he started with Next Generation because that was that was his series and my like we're watching him and like my sister is hiding behind the couch watching with us and my dad's like you can come on the couch if you want to and my sister who would have been like 11 or 12 at the time says i don't want to be a nerd (laughs) (laughs) and that's funny too because i like i i also got trek from my parents but it was like far less a thing that they introduced to me and more just like osmosis um in that like that that was just what was on the television and like is it appropriate for children is it not appropriate for children we're not going to ask trek. these questions it's on the, it's you know it's star trek it's inspirational media like it's on the tv it's it's fine it's fine don't worry about it but yeah I, a lot of people 
But the original series just has it has a lot of charm oh, yeah. to it. Yeah. Uh and and it's it's interesting it's interesting to me always to see how people like remember it and engage with it and stuff like that now. And it's you know, especially with how you know, with the fact that, you know, culture was so dramatically different at that time. Um mm-hmm. and I've you know, I've had to I've had to remind a bunch of people who, you know, have like you know, railed against railed against the, you know, the skimpy the skimpy miniskirts and clearly that just means that you know Gene Roddenberry was you know you know a lech and I'm like absolutely he was but also <laughs> but also that wasn't that that those were good those were a good thing they were liberating it's important like other people to do things at once yeah yeah I I do have I do have one last question do you bring in Curzon Dax slash will you bring in Curzon <laughs> Dax okay Curzon okay, sorry. Dax. Will ap- the Dax is will appear. I think there is um, there will be a reference, and because I'm doing the 2060s, there'll be a reference to Emily Dax being a guest at a state dinner. All right, all right. But then Curzon Dax will be if and when touch wood, I do Kitima. Curzon Dax will be a primary source. Fantastic. Like, it, when I do the Kitima negotiations. It's going to be done from Curzon Dax's memoirs and his perspective and interviews he did with the author. I'm trying to remember, is there, I think there's also like an excerpt from his memoirs or something. In, or Federation maybe- of First 150, Federation of First 150 Years by David Goodman has him at okay. Kitima. Okay, that's So I will have my Kitima. I might even have him turn up originally in the aftermath of Genesis, but he would basically be like 18 years old. Yeah. So. But yeah, Curzon excellent, Dax excellent, excellent. Because speaking speaking of speaking of you know one man being multiple things along so many different yeah. axes. <laughs> Absolutely. All right, so John, thank you for coming on the show. I think I, I've I've ranted about this occasionally to Anna and June, and <laughs> so this is this will be good indoctrination for them. Uh, Beautiful. But where can people find you on the internet? So you can find me. At Bad Socialism on Twitter. Um, for the project, you can go to at EOM Project on Twitter. If you Google the Edge of Midnight Star Trek and the website, which has first 15 chapters, it has um, the PDF of the first book, which is nice and pretty, done by my colleague Hyam Adikian of Tranquility Press. It also has all the bumper additional material, which includes car- um, Wikipedia profiles, charts, breakdowns, other articles about things like the Palais de Concorde, um, uh, Ambassador Dacra. It has maps. Everybody loves a map. I've got maps now. Um, it also has a game. I've got a Twine game I need to update, if you're into that sort of thing. And it also has a link to the um, audiobook podcast, where Stephen Van Doren read out the first 10 chapters of A Business of Risk. So if you don't want to read it, but would like to hear it anyway. You can listen to it while you go around your day. There's a link also to the Discord channel if you want to come and chat with me there. But overall, I am the Edge of Midnight is part of the Tranquility Press Group, which is a collection of other fan works, which includes um, We've Engaged a Borg, which is the oral history of the Battle of Three, Wars 359, um, which is like, as I said, it's like World War Z, but for 359, it's Huge, it's like 400,000 word, 400, odd words. 
of about the Battle of Three before, during, and after the Battle of Ball Three Five Nine, written by my friends Andy and Eric, um, and also Kai, who I mentioned earlier, wrote has written a series called Through the Eye of the Needle and the Uniaka Three Project, which are about the ex Borg from Picard. You know, Hugh has his XBs. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's about what that culture is like and what Uniaka Three is like as this Borg ex Borg community and it's sort of an exploration of allegories for queerness and self-identity in the late 24th century it's really great fun um there's a giant sentient borg sphere that loves us all <laughs> it's great i really recommend the yoni x3 project really. but yeah that's us at tranquility press uh we have engaged the borg is i think one of like one of my favorite things that i read last year it, it, like i consumed it in one day <laughs> oh yeah it's just like oh i'll read a bit of this oh i've read the whole thing again and it's three in the morning <laughs> shit <laughs> all right well again thank you for coming on and for our listeners uh this will probably be coming up between stuff uh this isn't really a numbered episode so i don't know what we'll be covering next time because i don't know what's coming out next Until next time, just keep circling. Keep circling. Just keep circling. Just keep circling. Yeah. Just keep circling. Just keep circling. Just keep circling. Just keep circling. The Babylon Project is an independent production. All views expressed on the show are our own. Clips from the original show remain property of the original owner. Music information can be found in the show notes. The rest of the show is licensed under a Creative Commons 4.0 share-alike no derivatives license.